Hello and welcome to the Wild Enrichment Podcast. My name is Kyle Banton-Jones and I'll be your host. The Wild Enrichment Podcast is a show about animal welfare, training, enrichment, and everything in between. Each episode, we will be exploring concepts surrounding behavioral husbandry and the ever-advancing field of animal welfare, from interviews with real animal care professionals to educational episodes about new concepts in animal care. This is the Wild Enrichment Podcast. Enjoy. Okay, hello everybody and welcome back to the Wild Enrichment Podcast. Uh, Today we are joined uh, by Jade Fountain of uh, Animal Behavior Matters. Uh, We're very happy to have you today, uh, Jade, so thanks so much for coming on. Thanks so much for having me, Kyle. Really excited to chat to you today. Yeah, so we're going to be talking about, um, you know, uh, a lot of positive reinforcement, animal welfare topics, as well as your uh, company, Animal Behavior Matters. Uh, do you want to sort of give the audience a, a background as far as, uh, you know, your background and how you got involved in animal welfare and positive reinforcement training, all that good stuff? Yeah, absolutely. So gee, it's been a bit of a journey now. I started out in working with shelter animals, actually, was my first first introduction to being in the animal welfare area and when i was there i was also volunteering at a zoo at the same time and i saw all these parallels between the needs of human uh, of these animals in human care whether they were in the shelter or in the zoological industry and that sort of started to open up my my mind and and uh, the possibilities of how positive reinforcement was being applied uh, with dogs in the shelter and similarly with animals in the zoo that was about 13 years ago now. And I think the industry has certainly grown and developed both in around the world, in the United States and in Australia. I think Australia has been a little bit in playing catch ups with uh, making sure we uh, spread and advance uh, training of animals as, as a welfare index in zoos. And it, yeah, I just um, got more and more passionate about it. And I started to travel overseas to attend conferences and network with people. And I think it was really seeing, uh, while I was over in the States, I, I remember seeing a starfish being trained at one of the major aquariums and with positive reinforcement. And it really blew my mind back then. And I thought, wow, this is incredible. There's no limit on species that we can interact yeah. with when we understand their motivations and we understand how to provide reinforcement effectively. And I really just got more and more excited. And then I, I saw uh, Disney Animal Kingdom training uh, poison dart frogs to voluntarily step into small, tiny little crates that they designed for them so that they could move them without handling them if they needed to and ask them to participate in their care. And I thought, this really is everything from training bees, bumblebees to detect things and uh, interact with objects all the way through to elephants. And yeah, I think that's that fueled my passion. And yeah. I have studied uh, extensively since, since that journey began. And I got a degree in animal behavior and psychology and zoology. And then I went on to get a uh, master's degree in animal behavior, uh, I had some phenomenal experiences along the along the way with that study in South Africa and Botswana for some of that and seeing a lot of conservation programs around the world. Um, then I did a Masters of Applied Behaviour Analysis and learned even further mm-hmm. about applications of behaviour change and how we can do our best in helping our animals learn. Right now, I'm doing a PhD, so that journey oh, wow. is still continuing. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Always a student when you're... Uh 
in the animal welfare and training world, that's for sure. There's always more stuff, uh, more stuff to learn. That's uh, really, what is your PhD in? Uh, I'm looking at welfare of training and how, how we can apply the training better to improve welfare. Specifically, I'm going to be looking at how scent work improves the lives of animals. So we're talking about nose work, scent work that companion dogs do in classes and uh, the applications of that and how it improves behavior. Yeah, no, that's super interesting. Wow. Yeah. I, I, uh, you know, hearing you talk about going into the sort of zoo world and seeing the amount of, uh, animals and species that you're, that are being trained, uh, especially the ones that aren't sort of traditional. When you think of that, I, I definitely experienced that I came from uh, like a horse background and, you know, horse training is, is still a, very much more of a gray area than it needs to be right now. Yes. And, and it was, I remember, you know, having trailered horses my whole life and then seeing people like voluntarily train camels and, and, and zebra and all, all these things to go on trailers voluntarily without even, you know, being in the same space as them and being like absolutely mind blown. Like, how am I forcing horses to go on trailers, you know, back home? And then this is happening with species that are, you know, arguably way harder to, uh, harder quote unquote, uh, to train. So yep. yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty amazing when that sort of light bulb goes off. So. Yeah. I think there's a lot of goosebump moments in that when you see, and you're humbled by seeing some of those animals that you thought were impossible and those labels yeah. that come with that. I, I, I encounter that a lot with a different species that people say, Oh, they're untrainable. You can't train them. They're stubborn. They're, they're bossy. There's, there's all these labels that come along with it. Why they can't be trained. And um, I'd like to lay those assumptions down on the ground and, and let's, let's just um, yeah. have no impossibilities with that and ask the questions later. So, yeah, absolutely. And it definitely seems like you're doing that with your company, you know, animal behavior matters. So uh, do you want to give people a sort of idea of what that, uh, what that is and what you're currently sort of up to with that? Yeah, sure. Um, so I started animal behavior matters, or oh, I think it was about 13 years ago now was uh, the inception of that. And, Really, my vision was to have a training organization or training consultancy. That's that's the basis of it. Uh, I work on animal behavior and training as a consultant, and I really wanted to provide training for conservation. So where we have applications with threatened species programs or endangered species programs, where we can help animals uh, thrive in mm. human care, and that can lead to better breeding outcomes and welfare success we can help animals train for reintroduction into the wild there's so many applications and one of my mentors and and great friends ken ramirez has uh, has used that uh to train animals in the wild so positive reinforcement to influence migration patterns of animals where they were previously being poached or harmed and he's changed that that outcome for those animals for the better and it's incredible when you hear these stories and things like that really drive where i want um, my company to be in that changing outcomes for animals both in the wild and in predominantly in human care is where i focus my attention at the moment training for welfare is really important in my company so everything we well everything that i'm um, interested in doing is making sure that the behavioral welfare of the animal I'm working with is paramount in the decisions I make. So if we can train an animal to participate in their own healthcare training, that's number one. So whether we're talking about 
ferrets, dogs, cats, or whether we're talking about zoological species, if they are in human care, they're going to need treatment at some point. They're going to need routine care. They're going to need nail trimming, x-rays at some point in their life, blood draws or injections for health prevention. And none of these events need to be stressful for animals. So really Mm -hmm. important to me that that is a, a, a mainstay of what I do, teaching caregivers to teach their animals how to participate in in their own care and i want to improve uh, education so i also use my animal behavior matters uh, my social media i use that to promote research and knowledge and information about how we can all do better for the animals in our lives no matter what species we're working with yeah, no, absolutely. And you, and you do a fantastic job of that. I, the Animal Behavior Matters page, uh, especially on Facebook, there's, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of posts uh, very frequently about super. I saw, uh, you know, that horse getting um, trained for like an inhaler, which is uh, wild. And yeah, I was, uh, there's so many things that come up on your page that I haven't uh, even seen before. That's uh, really interesting. Uh, and and you, you talked a little bit about this training for uh, conservation. Um, do you have a sort of example? Because that's, that's something I haven't even really, uh, you know, heard of before. And I, I'd love if you had an example of, uh, of that working and case study about that. Yeah, sure. So a couple of the cases I've been involved in, in the past that um, quite exciting, working with an endangered uh, species Uh, rock wallaby that was in human care and was an ambassador for his species so that particular species they were down to about 250 animals left in the wild and when you get down to that number you've got a breeding program one thing that was important to the facility that cared for him was that they were able to get that message across to the public and and enlighten people about this species and and the plight of how they need support from humans in in uh, both conservation money and efforts and funding, but also in how we can change our behaviours to improve the likelihood of success for animals back in the wild. And some of that was as simple as helping that animal recover from being fearful of humans and building his confidence around meeting people and feeling safe around people and, and therefore being a, a really successful ambassador and meeting ministers and endangered species program managers and all kinds of people that come to make decisions and change these animals lives and that that training for that animal for that individual was really really important to build his confidence and and eliminate any fear so that's that's one example but there's also training programs where say um, not not myself that's been involved directly but in the research there is in the research field there's a lot of work going into training small native australian animals for instance to reintegrate into the wild and be savvy with predators that are non-native such as foxes Mm. and feral cats so teaching them to respond to them prior to release and really exciting stuff and that's using operant conditioning to change the way those animals respond to potential predators that they may not recognize those kind of programs also exist around the globe there's been really successful training programs for uh there's a species of crow in hawaii that went through a program of reintroduction with operant conditioning to teach them how to how to forage and find safety and escape routes and 
really exciting things like that. And I, I definitely encourage everyone to look up Ken Ramirez and his work with elephants. Um, I won't tell that story because I won't tell it as well as he can, but it's a really, really interesting and incredible uh, work that he's done. So worth, worth knowing about. Yeah. And I will, I will, uh, link that in the, in the show notes for, for everybody, um, if they want to, uh, check that out. Yeah. That's, that's, that's very interesting, interesting work. And, you know, there's just so many applications of, uh, you know, training and everything like that in that you just don't even think of. And the more, the more research is done, it's, yeah, it's, uh, fascinating. Uh, so you, so you do a lot of, uh, you know, consulting sessions, uh, particularly with, uh, you know, training around positive reinforcement and stuff like that. Uh, is there, uh, you know, sort of um, common themes with those that you'd like to talk about? Or is there uh, particular animals that you work a lot with, um, you know, that you that you see common themes? Or do you want to give a people an overview of what this sort of consulting sessions usually look like? Yeah, so I work with a range of clients. A lot of the time it's with pet caregivers. So with the companion animal industry, I'll work with commonly dogs, cats and parrots. I will also often work with horses and livestock or so farm animals and, and chickens. I'm, I'm really, I really love working with chickens. I end up working with them a lot. Oh, yeah. um, but a consultant consulting session looks like going usually into the home of the person or often on, I'm doing a lot of online sessions these days uh, via Zoom. And it's collecting a history of the animal, understanding their background and individual needs. I will usually always run a, a, a preference test with the animal we're working with. So we want to ask questions and take a systematic approach to what reinforcement is really important to that individual animal so we can utilise that. And that's asking the question out of these six types of treats and, and food reinforcers or toys or enrichment puzzles, which is your favourite? And we'll ask that question systematically and, and get a response. We can use that later in the training. I will work with the clients to build uh, an understanding of the environment, what the behaviour is and the function of that behaviour. So a lot of applied behaviour analysis comes into that where we want to measure the, the frequency of behaviour or the duration or when it's occurring, something about the behaviour. We want to know a little bit about that as the baseline. And we want to then measure that as we go. So we want to understand if the plan training plans that are put into place to help those people is effective. We want to know. So we want to see is that behavior coming down in frequency? Is there more of it, less of it? And that helps the client I'm working with know how successful they are in implementing the, the homework that I give them and the, and the work that we do together. The other thing I do in a training session is I teach mechanical skills to the human. So in, in coaching the human side of the equation, I want to work with them to teach them the skills they need to use positive reinforcement effectively. That's really, really important. Without that idea of using their mechanical skills, so the timing of when mm. the animal's right and, and how they deliver that food reinforcer or the toy to the animal, it's really critical in getting a good outcome. Otherwise, if we're sloppy with mechanics or something's not quite right there, we might not get results. Uh, so that's generally what it looks like. And I often consult with animal care teams. So that's everything from, say, the service dog industry and, and animal trainers working with dogs, for instance, in service work, animal service work. And so it could be guide dogs for the blind, sort of uh, seeing eye dogs and uh, service dogs, assistance dogs, and everything through to shelter animal staff and shelter caretakers. 
and that is helping them with their handling and training them also mechanical skills come into that and how they how they uh, interpret body language and building their skills in understanding the animal in front of them so that's generally what what i do and my interest is really about improving the wealth of whatever species it is whatever industry it is whether we're working with research animals so i'll also go in and work with university students who are using animals as part of their studies so they might be doing observations in a certain setting and or they might need to train a chicken to step up onto something to understand something about that animal that we can improve their welfare uh, long term uh, for the species and uh, I will help them in, in integrate positive reinforcement to train those animals to feel safe and to co cooperate and participate in that in that care. Yeah, that's that's uh, yeah, super interesting. Uh, with with uh, chickens, uh, what are some of the you know behaviors that people are usually looking to? And is this uh, in like an agricultural setting or or what what is usually the setting of these chicken consults? Great question. So, oh, a bit of a mix. There is a side to it where um, you you may or may not have heard of chicken camps or chicken training workshops, oh. and the benefit that that they're an incredible teacher. So, I will expand on that briefly, and that a lot of dog trainers around the world. So, this was um, born out of uh, Terry Ryan and Bob Bailey in the industry many many years ago, where they were running chicken training workshops for dog trainers predominantly dog trainers at the time but now all sorts of animal handlers attend and when you train a chicken you have to have very good timing you have to have very good observational skills and you really can't get away with um, not using positive reinforcement effectively if you want to ask a hen to do something now what are they doing you're probably wondering normally they're they're participating in obstacle courses mm. or uh, discrimination tasks so they've got to discriminate between different colors and pick the one that they're their target they're trained to target um and ignore the other types of stimuli in the environment and those workshops are incredible at building those trainers skill sets to go back and work with dogs or to go back and work at the zoo and apply their timing so that's the mechanical skill side of training that chickens are very very helpful for I, I do run those chicken workshops um but then there's also a growing huge industry with backyard poultry and backyard chickens yeah. it's it's I don't know about in the states I'm sure it's grown but it's it's just increased exponentially during the pandemic in Australia. There's so many people that have hens in their homes. And not only is there opportunity to inform people that might not have as good a, under, a very lay understanding of, excuse the pun, of how to look after chickens, but also to train chickens to participate in safety. So safety for their own well-being. So that is loading into crates or mm. into pet carriers on queue that is recalling back into their coops at night so that we don't need to be chasing them and, and hurting them and pushing them. But mostly um, there, there was a need for more and more training of, of livestock farm animals uh, after the severe bushfires in, in Australia in 2020, where people did not have a recall for basic, basic needs to get animals to safety. And obviously we've also had the flood since and it's just increasing around the world. So being able to recall a flock of chickens is so so easy oh, and it's yeah. something we can all do so that's yeah that's a good example of that yeah no that's yeah i i asked because my brother has chickens at home so that you know that was i'm sure he would be asking uh, 
you know, wondering. So I, you know, asked that for him a little bit. That's uh, yeah, no, that's, that's super interesting. And, and I think, yeah, this a concept of like cooperative care, uh, in a particularly like domestics and in those farm settings is definitely something that I see, you know, happening more and more and more as, as people realize that it's, you know, herding 60 chickens into a, into a, you know, a pen every single night, uh, into their coop every night is that takes a whole lot of time and getting them to just do it themselves, uh, willingly is, is probably a whole lot easier. Uh, I definitely see the need, need for that. Uh, you mentioned earlier the, um, you sort of have these questions that you ask people to sort of, uh, you know, front load your, uh, knowledge of where they're at and what they're doing with their, in these consulting sessions. Is, is there, you know, a couple example questions that you usually always ask? You mentioned like the reinforcers. And when you're asking these questions, are you relying on the, your client to provide the information or are you running sort of tests to find the answers yourself? Yeah, it's a really good question. So most often it's important for me to know what context the behavior is occurring in and is it happening, for instance, when every member of the family or every caretaker is present or is it only when somebody, one person, uh, individual is present? So we want to understand the function of the animal's behavior. That's the most important thing. There are definitely ways we can test this. So it depends on the individual, depends on the severity of the behavior change that we need to uh, work on. Um, so whether it's, you know, really da dangerous behavior or it's unsafe for somebody or for the animal, depending on that, if, if, if it's been going on for a long time, if, if we're looking at an animal being relinquished because they can no longer live with the family due to this behaviour challenge or or if we've got staff turmoil, turmoil with animals in, in care in a, in a captive facility, then we want to understand the function pretty quickly. So a very, um, very simple way to do that is uh, ABC assessment. So we're looking at the environment and the setting that the behaviour occurs in immediately prior to the behaviour. We want to be able to operationalise the behaviour. And by that, I mean, we want to describe it. So instead of just saying um, the dog sits, we want, we, want to, we want to say the dog, you know, seats at the rear end to the ground with, you know, perpendicular or we describe it clearly mm. so we know it can tell us some information. That was a very bad example, but <laughs> um, <laughs> on the fly, but, um, and we want to know the consequence. So what's happening immediately after the behavior is, is there somebody, um, you know, responding to say, hey, I'm still, I'm, I'm coming or hey, stop that. Or is there a, a verbal response from the human caretaker to the animal that might be uh, driving social social attention and, and, and social connection from the animal that they're, they're doing the behavior in order to get that connection with the person again, right. or, you know, is, is somebody leaving? And, and if the animal's fearful and they, and they engage in a behavior and the person leaves, that might be effective in driving that behavior. So they may engage in more of that. So that might be sort of, char you know, an animal that might be charging or growling or moving, you know, into that person's space and they move away, that's effective for safety for that animal. So they might do it again. So we ask all kinds of questions around the function of that behavior. Um, there is certainly uh, more, more systematic ways to test it, uh, doing a functional analysis. I won't go too in depth to that. that that's a whole whole uh, yeah. <laughs> whole hour lecture um but looking at um a set of of criteria of when that behavior occurs and we look at it very clearly um and it, it's a scientific method so we want to um have timing and you know we set up cameras to see if the animal does it when they're alone 
we see if they do it when they're um, getting a food reinforcer or maybe social attention. So we ask all those kinds of questions, but it's a really systematic way of measuring it and providing a, a, a good piece of information of how we set a behavior change plan. Right. Yeah. No, that's really interesting. It, it's, and, and the, one of the main reasons I ask is because, you know, uh, you, you definitely in, in larger like animal care teams in like a zoo setting or something, you definitely deal with uh, variation between individual trainers and that can have a pretty profound effect. So I'm sure you, you see a lot of those sort of biases in with, uh, I, I could, and it's probably way worse in a sort of domestic setting in somebody's house. You know, you have, uh, you have one of the family members that's sneaking them treats every five kind of five minutes and stuff like that. And that, I could definitely see that being, uh, that those biases playing more of a role in that sort of setting. Yeah, absolutely. That you, you've hit the nail on the head. That definitely happens. So, um, and and consistency in in the larger animal care teams in zoological facilities, that's definitely a big one. Someone's doing something different to someone else on the day, or somebody holds their hand a little bit differently when they're cueing an animal. Um, somebody yeah. gives different reinforcers. There's there's definitely tiny little things, nuances that we can that we can assess and change to help an animal learn. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, and in looking at your social media in, um, uh, preparation for this, I, I saw that you had a, a, uh, a post, uh, with a, a workshop, um, about kindness is essential, not optional. That was one of the, the things on the sort of banner of the poster. Do you want to sort of go in, in into detail as far as like what you mean by that? And why do you think that's important? Yeah, so that's an upcoming dog summit um, run out of the UK. Kindness is essential, not optional. It's been run the last two years by Dr. Holly Tetch. She's um, a lovely, lovely trainer and fantastic in her for coordinating this event uh, that a lot of dog, dog trainers and dog professionals or animal trainers around the world are, are collaborating to um, to provide free uh, information for dog caregivers and or any animal caregiver really that, that wants to hear that information. But the... I got involved because I just love that notion. The title of that that dog summit, kindness is essential, not optional, is is so paramount in everything we should be doing as animal caretakers and whatever part of the profession we're working in. We really um, need to be making connections and seeking connections with animals where there's consent involved from the animal as well as the person so that um, something we'll probably explore as we go further into questions. Um, but the we really need to be more humane in how we train and help animals learn and all of the science and research in the literature points us in that direction. It's been guiding us that way um, for the last 10 years, more and more studies come out, whether that's been born from the human field and how we treat people in animal, in behavior change, but we need to apply that to animals a lot better. And we need to apply that no matter what the species are we're working with, I think. We get a lot uh, caught up a lot with say dogs and horses just because we can doesn't mean we should yeah you know if we can train a grizzly bear to load into a crate on cue without being even in the room with them uh if we can get a poisoned dart frog to step into a, a matchbox size container so we don't have to pick them up and manhandle them we can certainly achieve it with dogs no matter what the breed and so, so important to do it with horses as well and, and see that yeah. momentum change. Yeah. And in my last podcast, I had uh, Dr. Valley Fraser Selin on, 
uh, who's done a lot of work in positive reinforcement training, uh, a lot of research on uh, dog behavior, wild dog behavior. Um, and, and we talked extensively about, you know, those sort of, um, in the dog training facility, uh, you know, world, it's, it's, it's very similar in the horse training world and stuff. There's still that prevalence of these, you know, these snake oil salesmen and these balanced trainers and these, uh, compulsion based trainers and, and all those things. Uh, and, and I don't really see that as much in the exotics world, especially in like the zoo world, I, I think. It, do you think, do you have sort of thoughts on why those, those, you know, these, uh, training methods still exist and, and, you know, what, what you think we can, we can sort of do to put that to bed? You know, I think for me in my journey, the, the greatest thing I've learned is, is, is that cross species introduction to training and that it really blows your mind when you, when you see all these large and dangerous animals positive reinforcement and when you learn to use reinforcement incredibly effectively or if you hit a crossroads where you're not sure what to do you have that humility to reach out to a colleague or someone in the profession that has more experience with that animal than you do um, that helps you learn it helps you grow Um, it helps us get out of these entrenched ideas that we had 20 years ago and that we've that most um that positive reinforcement trainers have grown grown with and taken that research and that evidence i think it's really about helping people shift their perspective and really helping them understand no matter what animal we're working with uh you can you can apply reinforcement effectively doesn't matter the behavior problem we'll find a way and if, if i can't on my own we'll do it as a community and have other trainers with other minds have a look at this problem so before resorting to punishment which we should never need to we need to ask others what would you do to use reinforcement more effectively here if i can't use it so i think i think i'd love to see people that are relying more heavily on punishment or uncomfortable with using positive reinforcement in a variety of settings I would invite them to come and train a chicken, come and train a goat, come and train a goldfish where we don't even have the ability to put our hands on that animal and learn to use those tools incredibly effectively when we can't put a tool on the animal. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and sorry, back to the, back to the chickens. Is there a, a particular reason why they pick chickens it, is because if, if you, you know, try to do a sort of punishment on a chicken, they're just going to fly at you and it'll be, a nightmare or, or is there a, is there a particular reason? It's a good question. Well, chickens are very fast responders. Um, and they're, they're fairly, um, fairly easy to handle, I suppose in between. So, so they're, they're an ideal animal that we can work with say in a workshop setting that are not too flighty and, and we can, we can teach them very quickly to be comfortable eating, eating around people. Um, so smaller animals I've seen used in workshops like guinea pigs and rats. Uh, rats are incredible learners as mm. well, but they're a lot harder for people to handle. They're, they're small. A lot of people are frightened of them. So I think there's, there's some reasons why chickens were chosen, but they've been so effective as teachers that, that it's just continued along that, that trajectory with, with using them as models and, and teachers. I've also attended workshops um, at the, the Karen Pryor Ranch um, in the US. They have goats as teachers, so working with goats mm. and donkeys. If you are only really experienced with one species, it doesn't matter what kind of animal you, you stretch your limits with and, and go and learn with um, and step outside that comfort zone. They're all going to give you good lessons. I mean, goats Absolutely. are incredibly 
fast. They're like Jack Russells of the goat world of the of the livestock world. Yeah. Um, they're they're very quick. <laughs> yeah. No. Absolutely. That's yeah. That's a good point. And and I'm sorry. No more chicken questions. Your company isn't chicken behavior matters, so I won't go too down the rabbit hole. But that's <laughs> it's just very interesting to me. Um, do do you have a sort of a recent project that that really highlights um, you know a lot of your your beliefs uh, and and sort of the work that Animal Behavior Matters does? I think some of the work with the native Australian animal species I've been working on over the last few years, I've had the opportunity to work with several wildlife trust organisations um, in helping their caregivers or their animal handler care teams work with those animals to present them to the public in a way that's safe for the animal. They don't necessarily need to interact with the public, but they, they can still inspire minds and spreading those important messages that we need to do better as humans with how we care for their habitats and the the spaces that these animals share with us. I think those are the important messages to get across in those sessions. We can all, also teach people about positive reinforcement training in general and look what can be achieved with, with all these different species, working with emus and breaking down those barriers that you know, I experience it a lot in Australia that emus are stubborn and can't be trained mm. and I've achieved incredible things working with um, care teams with, with emus in the last few years that people said, you know, you can't, can't do that with an emu. You just have to lay down those, those expectations yeah. and biases that we have. Um, so I think I just, I just like those opportunities with animal behavior matters that I've had to, to stretch across different industries. Uh, recently worked with a, research team at one of the universities here in Australia to improve how their dogs learned a certain skill um, that they were working on in an exercise to ask about dog cognition and projects like that. I just, I love expanding the investment that industries are making. So if we could get more, more people in the research industry to, to know that you can train your animal with positive reinforcement and help them participate in the, in the projects with you, um, I think it would would improve a lot of areas as well, um, improve the baselines that we have on those animals and understanding of them. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, one of the things, especially when you start training a variety of, of, of animals and individuals, uh, different species, you know, you really start to see how the role of personality and the actual individual animal really uh, you know, affects your methods and, and how you approach these problems. Um, you know, how do you have any advice for people to sort of how to manage that and how to uh, sort of uh, get an idea of what uh, the individual animal needs and not just this whole sort of species and as a whole? Yeah, I love that. Yeah, obviously, the species as a whole is is, is the best starting point. It's where we step off from. Um, so we understand the body language. We understand when the animal's uncomfortable, what what kind of um, postures or um, body positions we see them in to give us information. Um, but past that, it's um, circling back to those preference tests I mentioned, asking questions first of the animal, what's your favourite food item? What's your favourite food item out of, out of these choices? What's your favourite toy to interact with? So so that we can be effective in, in training them and changing behaviour. We ask that question first, but taking into consideration that individual's comfort level. So are they a bold or a shy animal? And how can we arrange the environment so that they feel safe? How can we make sure we move ourselves as a trainer or a, or a teacher? How do we move in the space around them so that we don't startle them? Um, 
are there considerations in the equipment we're using that we need to make it less uh, intimidating? Do we spend longer teaching that animal that they can feel safe with that equipment around them, uh, interacting with those things? So even as simple as some dogs being so fearful of harnesses, you know, can we teach those dogs to, well, we absolutely can teach those dogs, mm. but can we spend longer teaching them they feel safe stepping into their harness before we're using it on them in a training scenario um, or walking them in it? So those are the kinds of considerations. It's in arranging the environment and being uh, very mindful of how we move, the speed at which we move, the speed we deliver the reinforcer, things like that. Yeah, no, that's that's great. Yeah, because uh, I, I you definitely see um, you know the role of the individual becoming uh, more and more prevalent in animal welfare as a whole. Like especially you know when you're talking about uh, enrichment and and their preferences there and their past experiences, it all plays a huge role in their their experience every single day. So, uh, yeah, it's definitely something to, to think about since you work with so many different people, uh, on their training projects, is there sort of general advice you have, uh, you know, things that, that a lot of people are doing, um, that you might have, have advice to sort of overcome, uh, to deliver better, uh, more effective training programs? I think one of the most common uh, pieces of advice and, and the common um, problems that I come across with animal care teams, especially when you've got quite a few people working with an animal, whether that's staff and animal hand, animal care teams in a, in a um, zoo or a captive facility, or whether it's a family of, you know, multiple people in a, in a household with an animal, the most common piece of advice is really honing their mechanical skills so making sure that their reinforcement timing their reinforcement delivery their how they move in space those mechanical skills that the, we have as a human teacher is so so important i think that's the most common thing i work on with teams mm, yeah no absolutely even um you know there's uh there's even things like how the, like the tone of voice when, uh, you're sort of reinforcing an animal, like you're giving that, you're delivering your, their bridge and stuff like that. Yeah. Everything that you do is really, uh, important and, and yeah, absolutely. I'm sure that is a, that's a really common, common thread that you kind of, uh, come into contact with. Um, so where do you see the sort of biggest area of advancement being with training, uh, and, and animal welfare in the sort of next five to 10 years, because it is a field that's, you know, growing so quickly. Absolutely. And, and it's exciting how much it's growing and Absolutely. how quickly I think, um, I really think consent is the biggest, biggest topic that we're going to be coming up against and or not against, but moving with and growing with mm -hmm. it's, it's so, so crucial in every species we work with. And, and by consent, I mean, are we asking the question that the animal's comfortable with the interaction we're having with them? So everything from our, our animals at home, so our, our dogs and cats at home, when we pat them, are they okay with this interaction? So can, a really quick rundown on a consent test is patting your dog and then waiting three seconds, just pause for three seconds. Does your animal solicit further interaction? Does your animal pause or move away or lean away as and say, no, thanks, not right now? So if um, if when you pause, that animal's able to ask for more and say, hey, keep going and give you a bit of a nudge or move into your space or, or move closer, um, we're really allowing them that voice to say, yeah, yeah, go ahead, um, versus if we pause and they do nothing or they move away or they get up and leave, that's pretty clear information. They, they don't want us to continue. And 
that kind of question in every animal species we're working with, whether we're, we've got, um, you know, a curry comb on a horse and we're, we're, we're giving them a bit of a rub down and we pause, do they want us to continue with that interaction right now? You know, maybe they've got other things on their mind. Maybe there's a distraction going on, so we should we should stop. And those conversations are fluid. They they change throughout the day. So where my dog might want a, you know, bit of a chest rub now, later today when he's busy focused on something, he'll say, no, thanks, not right now, and and I've got to listen. So consent, whatever species we're working with, is, is huge, and I think we're going to pay need to pay more attention to that. The five domains is another one I think we need to lean more into. So five domains placing an M is really replacing the five freedoms um, or complementing them and extending on them more so. It's accounting for all the ways we provide good welfare in the husbandry and the care we give the animals, but also extending that thought to positive reinforcement training and making sure we place an emphasis on animals' lives being worth worth living. And that's where I want to that's where I want to see our industry go yeah. in the next five to ten years. That's where I hope. Uh, with human care, we just we provide more, place more emphasis on giving good welfare and pleasure in an animal's day rather than we've done the basics. We need to extend on that. Are they having a good time? Um, do they have stuff that's that feels good to to interact with during the day? Um, the other the other thing I think we're going to see more of and we're going to grow is technology. So how we use apps. So better apps that better record how we're training. So how many times we we bridge or mark a behavior how many times we have a successful repetition of a behavior and we can track the progress of training programs better and more consistently with big teams so yeah i think there's going to be better technology we're, we're seeing more apps being designed for animals to interact with like i see sometimes um parrots and cats interacting with tablets uh there's there's obviously more technology being introduced with primates and zoo facilities how we uh, stimulate their minds and engage them. So I think we'll see some pretty cool tech coming up. Yeah, coming up no, absolutely. Well. AI isn't just for people cheating on their university tests. It's, uh, <laughs> I think it's going to definitely play a huge, uh, huge role. Yeah. And, and I've heard a lot of conversations and had a lot of conversations around, you know, introducing that choice and control and agency yeah. into an animal's life and how impactful that can be on, you know, their sort of day-to-day -day life. Do you have any sort of uh, examples of how you could maybe introduce that sort of choice and control and agency into your, your pets that you might have at home? I know you mentioned the, um, you know, the, the brushing test and everything like that. Do you have any, anything else that's easy for people to try? I think um, the, the other thing that we can do for, for dogs and, and cats is, um, giving them choice of spaces that they use in, in the home and uh, seeing what their preferences are and allowing that. Um, but the biggest one is that that choice with with interaction physically. I think mm -hmm. that's huge because a lot of cat aggression I see and I work with with families is based on when a cat's not interested in being physically touched anymore. And, and we are such a touchy species and we, we love to, you know, be in, interacting physically with our animals that that often collides that yeah. idea sometimes with animals that's in conflict with what they want right now so i think that's the, the top one is is asking yes or no for physical interactions but we can we can ask questions about their toys we can do preference tests on toys and and see what they want to do as well yeah no that's that's yeah uh, great advice uh so what are you sort of most excited about at animal behavior matters right now uh it, with the whole sort of direction of the company 
Oh, I'm I'm really excited about getting getting to things like this where connecting and extending that the the audiences um, to touch about on on animal care and welfare and how we can do do more investment into the research and and understand how we can provide better outcomes for our animals based on on what what studies are telling us right now and um, being involved in that myself during my PhD I, I get, I'm excited that. Um, I get to contribute to that base of knowledge and um, potentially share that. So I am now that we're through the pandemic, I'm really looking forward to getting to more conferences and getting to more networking events with people. But that opportunity to connect on social media is fantastic as well and and grow that audience to to interact with about how we how we do the best for our animals. Yeah, no, that's that's great. Um... If you could sort of put a poster in any, you know, animal care facility or maybe even people's homes, whatever, uh, whatever kind of suits you best, uh, what would it say and, and why? I think it would say positive reinforcement is worth your time and worth your investment. I think that we often get caught up in, I don't have time to train or I don't have time to work on this or or there's too much to do with husbandry care or or what we've got to do in the day to fit in this training session and i think that the the best thing you can do is a one five minute training session a day even if you can't fit in more um and not letting that become become something that's that's secondhand to your other tasks it should be a cornerstone of your animal care no matter what species you've got at least one learning or training session a day or providing enrichment once a day should be the top of your list and it should be the cornerstone of how you care for that animal. Yeah, no, that's great. And yeah, the, the time thing comes up so often with training projects and, you know, uh, a lot of people don't realize that they don't have time not to train, you know, because Absolutely. they're all busy spending, spending half an hour a day chasing all their chickens into their coops every day when they could just be, uh, you know, doing it on a positive reinforcement basis and it would be a whole lot easier for everybody. Yeah, absolutely. That investment up front, even if it feels like it takes time, cuts so many hours off your day later. It, it's um it is such a time saver in the end. And I think people find it hard to see that when it when you've got to make that investment of time up front. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's it's tempting to sort of not spend the time when you're rushing around and if you, especially if you have other animals to care for and uh, you are kind of prioritizing, but it definitely compounds and is worth the investment in the end. Uh, yeah, well, uh, you know, this was awesome. Uh, where can people sort of find you, uh, and, and where's the best place to kind of check out what you're up to and, and see all the great resources that you put out. Yeah, thanks Kyle. I think that Facebook is the best place to find me. I post most of my information and, uh, studies and, and cool stuff that I find on Facebook. So animal behavior matters is very easy to find. I have Instagram for animal behavior matters and also animal behavior matters.com.au but I'm most active on Facebook. So I definitely recommend jumping on there. Yeah, no, that's great. I will uh, link that uh, down below for everybody to check out. I definitely recommend them uh, giving it a follow. It is, it is uh, awesome. Some of the stuff uh, that you find and some of the stuff that I've uh, learned from that Facebook page. So, uh, you know, Jade, this was an awesome conversation. And uh, again, if anybody uh, definitely check out Animal Behavior Matters, it's uh, uh, great what you've put together and, and, and we thank you for, for coming on. Thank you so much for having me, Carl. Really, really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. And to everybody listening, uh, we'll see you again next time.
We hope you enjoyed that episode of the Wild Enrichment Podcast. If you want to follow us on social media, you can find us at Wild Enrichment on Instagram, Facebook, and Pinterest. If you want to learn more about Wild Enrichment and see some of our great resources, check out www.wildenrichment.com. Also, if you wish to support Wild Enrichment, check out our Patreon. Again, thank you so much for listening. Until next time. Wild Enrichment is independently owned and claims no affiliation to any zoo, aquarium, or other animal care institutions. All of the information and opinions communicated through this podcast, wildenrichment.com, and affiliated social media accounts are based on my own opinions and experiences and are not in any way reflective of the opinions of my employers past or present. Thank you.